It is not at all uncommon in fiction stories and fairy tales to hear about and read about dragons. Sometimes the dragons are friendly, like Puff the Magic Dragon. I don't know how many of you will remember Puff the Magic Dragon. Sometimes the dragons are fierce. Although most of us are familiar with dragons in fictional stories and fairy tales, there is a dragon who is not make-believe. He is a ferocious, formidable foe. And he is called a dragon to get our attention to realize just how dangerous he really is. We learn more about him in the text we come to for this message. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 12, if you aren't already there. And please follow along as I read verses 1 through 12, although we covered verses 1 through 6 last Lord's Day, but to get the full context in our minds, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. As I mentioned in the last message in this series, there's a sense in which we've already worked our way through most of the future seven-year tribulation period, because we've already seen the blowing of the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11, and the blowing of the seventh trumpet signals the beginning of the end. But before John describes the results of that seventh trumpet in chapters 15 and 16, he pauses 
and backs up to give us even more information about the seven-year tribulation period that he has already been describing since chapter 6. All of this information, this new information, is recorded for us in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Look at it this way. For us to really appreciate the significance of the final judgments in chapter 16, we need to get insight into the hidden forces behind this great climax of human history and the personages that play a part in that climax. So that is exactly what we are given in chapters 12, 13, and 14. As John tells us more about Israel who, of course, will be the focus of the seven-year tribulation period, more about Satan, more about the Antichrist, and, interestingly, first-time information about someone who is called the coming false prophet. All of this additional information helps us understand why, in chapter 16, God is going to completely obliterate the final kingdom of the seven-year tribulation period. That future struggle is merely the outworking of a conflict between God and Satan that has lasted throughout history since Satan's fall. So that's what we see depicted here in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. As you probably know, the book of Revelation is known as apocalyptic literature. It is a special kind of genre or literature in the Bible not unique to the Bible, by the way. We have other extra-biblical records or accounts or writings that are also apocalyptic in nature. It was a common type of, of writing all the way back in Old Testament times up to the New Testament times. And apocalyptic literature is literature that uses strange symbols, creatures, etc. to communicate truth. So you need to be careful when dealing with apocalyptic literature because it's very easy to jump from the symbols into allegorizing and making the text say something it is not really saying. The symbols are symbols, but they have literal meaning, as we will see when we come to our focus on the dragon. That is a symbol, a creature with a literal meaning, and of course you know it if you know much of the Bible at all, that in this case the dragon is Satan, but symbolized in that form. Now, in the last message, we considered verses 1 through 6 of this 12th chapter, where John saw Satan's attempt, attempts to destroy Israel and her Messiah down through the centuries. That has been the case. Now, verses 7 through 12 give us even more behind-the-scenes insight concerning this, what you could call the War of the Ages, the real Star Wars. So, in verse 7, we are told, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. By the way, before beginning to analyze this verse, this is one of many verses uh, where we are told that demons, which is the most common name we use for Satan's hosts, are actually angels. They are angels, fallen angels, and thus called demons. But probably the first question that comes to the minds of many people when they read this verse is, what is Satan doing in heaven? Most people wrongly think Satan lives in hell. But beloved, he doesn't live in hell. In fact, he's never been to hell. He was condemned on the cross. 
He was condemned to hell, but the carrying out of that sentence, the execution of it, won't take place until after the millennial kingdom, we are told in the book of Revelation in some of the later chapters. Job 1 and Zechariah 3 both illustrate for us the fact that Satan has access to heaven. In fact, it may be accurate to say in some measure he dwells in heaven. That is a foreign radical thought to most Christians because they believe that Satan is in hell, not in hell. In fact, in Ephesians 2.2, he is called the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that we wrestle against spiritual hosts of wickedness, catch this, in the heavenly places. Heavenly places. That is a reference to demons, or as this verse indicates, Satan's angels. So Satan does have some angels on his side, as we saw in verse 4 last Lord's Day. When he rebelled against God, he took with him a third of all the angels. Matthew 25, 41 says, Jesus says there, that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. So Satan does have angels, and they are going to fight with him in this heavenly battle. That leads us to another important question. What prompts this war, and when does it happen? There are at least three possibilities. I'll mention all three and then mention which one I lean toward and why. Number one, this battle, this war, might take place right at the beginning of the tribulation period as, the, as, as a result of the great uh, gathering together unto Jesus in the air if Satan and his demons try to stop that. 1 Thessalonians 4 clearly says that the great gathering together of the church in the air unto the Lord Jesus will be accompanied by the voice of an archangel says in 1 Thessalonians 4, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. It's possible that the archangel is Michael. If so, when Michael's command or shout is given and the church is caught up in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, that's the exact language, 1 Thessalonians 4, caught up uh, in the air to be with the Lord, caught up in the clouds to be with the Lord in the air. If it is Michael's command or shout that is given that calls the church up, we will have to pass right through the realm of, of the prince of the power of the air. So that's one possibility. Maybe this happens right at the beginning of the tribulation or prior to it in connection with that event. Secondly, it may take place at the midpoint of the tribulation period and result in the severe persecution of Israel during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. That is, it may happen in connection with or about the same time as what Jesus called the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Thirdly, it might take place right near the end of the tribulation after the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Look at chapter 11. Go back to the left just a couple chapters. Chapter 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And that wording is similar to the wording we read in chapter 13. So it's possible that this is when the war will take place. It is also possible, in light of what we saw in our last study of verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12, 
that Satan will even have the audacity to try to storm heaven and kill the Lord Jesus at some point in the future. We saw in our study of verses 1 through 6 that Satan hates, absolutely hates the Lord Jesus Christ, and he tried to kill the Lord from the very beginning. Actually, he tried to prevent him from even coming, uh, tried to prevent the messianic line, and then tried to kill him uh, as a baby and then throughout his life. So Satan might even be insane enough to try that again in the future at some point during the seven-year tribulation period. Now personally, I lean toward the view that places this war at the midpoint of the tribulation period. The mention of Michael here in verse 7 reminds me of what was told to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. Go back into Hebrew scripture with me to Daniel chapter 12. And I'll show you uh, that to which I'm referring. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Now that's stated to Daniel, so this would be Jewish people. Your people, Daniel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. The verse begins with the phrase, and at that time, which raises the question, what time is he referring to when he makes that comment? Well, the last reference to time in the book of Daniel was chapter 11, verse 40, where it says, at the time of the end. So it's obvious that the time referred to here in chapter 12, verse 1, is the time of the end. It is still referring to the seven-year tribulation period. And from the description of verse 1 of Daniel chapter 12, we know that it's the last half of that tribulation period. The phrase, a time of trouble such as never was, introduces us to the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now maybe that phrase sounds familiar to you, and it should, because that's the phrase Jesus used to refer to the last half of the tribulation period in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. Those three and a half years are sometimes called the Great Tribulation. It is God's final purging of Israel. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of this devastating time. Listen as I read his description of it in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 4 through 7. Very powerful description the prophet Jeremiah gives. He says, Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not peace. Ask now, listen to this, Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. Has any man ever gone into child labor? No, no man's ever been pregnant and gone into labor. So why then do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Another name for Jacob? Israel. A time of Israel's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. This will be such a devastating time that the prophet Zechariah in chapters 
in chapter 13, verses 8 and 9 of his prophecy, said, It shall come to pass that in all the land, says the Lord, that two parts in it shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined, will test them as gold is tested. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people. And they shall say, The Lord is my God. What does the prophet Zechariah say there in chapter 13 of his prophecy? He says that two out of every three Jews will die during that time period. And the one-third left will be redeemed. In Matthew 24, Jesus spoke of this time and said, said to the Jewish people, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days had been shortened, there, should be, there would be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, and in that context, it's the elect of Israel. For the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. As we have seen in many past studies, Revelation chapter 6 through 18 described this time. It will be a time of war, famine, the death of 25% of the world's population, the collapse of the sky, the destruction of one-third of the land and sea, the pollution of one-third of earth's fresh water, the release of demons from the pit, the affliction of sores on the body, scorching sunlight, darkness, and much, much more. Although this will be God's purging process for Israel, it will also be a time in which Satan will do everything he can to totally wipe out the nation of Israel from the earth. But God won't let that happen. That's why Daniel 12.1 says, Michael will stand up for Daniel's people. Israel will be persecuted ruthlessly, and Michael will stand up for them so that they are not totally annihilated. The end of verse 1, Daniel 12, 1 says, And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. It shouldn't surprise us to read that there's going to be deliverance. Jeremiah 30 said there would be deliverance. Zechariah 13 said, Although two-thirds would die, one-third will be delivered and purged. In Matthew 24, Jesus said the days would be cut short to deliver the elect of Israel. And Revelation 12 says that the woman Israel will be given wings to escape. In other words, all of these passages are saying the same thing. There will be deliverance. Now, you know what that tells me, beloved? The fact that God says that so often tells me that that time is going to be so horrific that it probably won't look like the people of Israel will survive. So God has to say it over and over and over and over again. Jeremiah, Zechariah, Matthew, Revelation. There will be deliverance. And Michael will play a major role in that protection. Now back to Revelation chapter 12. And with that in mind, Michael's role from Daniel 12, maybe we can tie together what we see here in Revelation chapter 12. So Michael and his angels fought. Verse 7 tells us in Revelation 12, The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Michael and his angels are more powerful, or maybe it's just that they're more numerous than Satan and his angels. So Michael and his angels will win the Star Wars. But 
neither Satan, catch this, neither Satan nor any of his angels will be killed. This isn't a normal battle. This is a cosmic battle. Spirit beings can't be killed. Spirit beings can't reproduce. What that means is there are exactly the same number of spirit beings in existence today as when they were all created. Whatever that number is in the millions, billions, there are the same number. They haven't procreated. There aren't more. None have died. There aren't less. So the result of this victory by Michael and his angels isn't that demons are killed and now there are fewer demons. No, the result is that Satan and his angels will no longer be allowed in heaven. They are cast to the earth. And verse 9 says, So the great, great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. As you can see, this verse contains many of the names or titles of God's enemy and our enemy. Oh, how I hate him. Oh, how I hate the destruction, the devastation he has caused in people's lives down through the centuries. One of his titles is Satan. That title is used 52 times in the Bible. The Hebrew word Satan means adversary or opposer. It is telling us he is our enemy, he is our adversary, he is our opposer, he is Satan. He is also in this verse called the devil. That is another common title for our enemy. It is used 35 times in the Bible. It is the Greek term diabolos. It's a combination of two Greek words, dia, through, balo, to throw or cast or hurl, diabolos. You put it together, dia, diabolos, it means one who throws something through another person. And it's often translated, therefore, slanderer, throwing something through someone else. It can also be translated, one who trips up. It pictures Satan as utterly or as uttering maliciously false reports that tend to injure the reputation of someone else. He slandered God back in Genesis 3. Do you remember that? When he told Eve that God was depriving her of something good. It's basically what he said. Oh, God's holding out on you. God's not good. You, you can't trust his character. Boy, how many times he's used that one with people to tempt them and get them to fall. We know from Job and Revelation that he slanders those of us who belong to God. He is the devil, the slanderer. He is also referred to here in this verse as the Old Serpent, combined title. That title refers back to the first reference of Satan in the Bible when he caused the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. You, you remember the story, the serpent. Old indicates he's been around for a long, long time. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows all the tricks. Sometimes people will wonder, you know, does... Has Satan watched me grow up? You know, does he know me? Does he know my tendency? He knows, well, I don't know if we could say definitively that Satan has watched all of us grow up, but he has enough demons to watch all of us so that he knows us thoroughly. Whether he does personally or he gets the information from his demons, he knows us, he knows mankind, he knows humanity, he knows tendencies. He is old, the old serpent. That means he's been around for a long time. He knows all the tricks and he is crafty. In fact, this verse says he deceives the whole world. 
He deceives the world through philosophy, through materialism, through religion, through false teaching, through false hope. And beloved, this is something that we need to to realize and wake up, especially here in our country. In many other countries, many other nations, many other cultures, Satan is still very overt and open in his activity. It's obvious what he's doing. But here it's, it's almost as if he's gone underground and he's very subtle in his attack, very slippery, very elusive. Because of that, many Christians are lulled to sleep by his tactics. Many think, well, he's not really that involved today like he was in Jesus' day where you see these people frothing at the mouth and falling down and all of that. We need to wake up because we're still in the war. And our enemy is a serpent. He is the old serpent who knows how to deceive. He is also referred to here as the great dragon. The crafty serpent's character becomes clear in this passage by that title, which is used most often here in chapter 12. He is portrayed as a terrifying, destructive beast. That's exactly what he is, beloved. Exactly. He is destructive. He is powerful. As I said a moment ago, he has has impacted countless lives, ruined countless lives with his lies, with his temptations, with his attacks. His great wrath against God and his people seeks their total devastation. In fact, you could probably make the argument that the reason he hates us isn't so much because of us, it's because of God. And he knows he can't get at God. And the, the, the age-old tactic of, well, if you can't hurt someone you hate, then hurt someone that person loves and you end up hurting him. Well, that fits exactly. He can't really do anything to God, but he knows that God cherishes his children And so he unleashes his hatred against us and in that way tries to get at God. He works like a crafty serpent, but his real character is that of a dragon. Ferocious, destructive, powerful. As the great dragon, Satan has an army of angels that joins him in his war of destruction. But this text tells us that the day is coming when he and his angels will be cast out of heaven for good. Notice verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The last part of this verse can be very discouraging if you think about it too long. Satan accuses us before our God, notice, day and night. It's unceasing. Anything we say, anything we do, any little mistake, any little slip, any and every sin he uses to accuse us before God. I'm sure he has plenty of information on me to throw around before the throne. Do you see what he just did? Do you hear what he just said? Do you see that attitude? He shouldn't be forgiven. You shouldn't claim him as one of your children. You you shouldn't welcome him in the family. He shouldn't be allowed to go to heaven. He shouldn't be allowed to enjoy your salvation. Those are the kinds of accusations, and I'm sure many more, Satan brings against us to God day and night. And you know why he does this? He wants God to condemn us. 
He wants God to disown us. He wants Christ's work of redemption to somehow be undone or overturned or rendered null and void. He wants, to put it just in plain terms, he wants salvation to be lost. So he accuses us before our God day and night. You could say it this way in contemporary legal terminology. He is the prosecuting attorney against us. The prosecuting attorney who never sleeps. But I hope you know, beloved, that we have a defense attorney. Our defense attorney is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I'm not stretching the analogy at all because 1 John 2, 1 says this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Don't sin. If you're a child of God, avoid sin. Say no to sin. But the very next phrase says, And if anyone sins, we have, and then different English translations, an advocate, my translation, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. Advocate's a good translation of that Greek term. But another one that's just as valid would be defense attorney. If anyone sins, we have a defense attorney before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's probably not translated that way in many English translations because it would confuse people. What do we need a defense attorney for? That sounds strange. Well, if that question is one that would be asked, all a person has to do is look at Revelation 12. That's why we need a defense attorney. Jesus is our defense attorney against Satan. Romans 8.33, and again, this same legal judicial terminology. The Bible loves to speak of salvation in those terms because there's so many parallels and and, uh, exact accuracies in comparison. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, once God has rendered his verdict, he's heard all the evidence, he knows all the information, he knows all of our sins, but he knows his own son's righteousness that is imputed to our record, our record, our account. And once God has rendered his verdict, who in the universe is going to overturn God's verdict of justified? God is the high, highest court in the universe. No one can overturn his verdict. He is the supreme court. And once God has declared us justified by faith, forgiven, pardoned, acquitted, righteous, that verdict stands for eternity. It can never be undone. It can never be reversed. There's no such thing as spiritual double indemnity. If the one before whom we are guilty, now catch this, if the one before whom we are guilty has pronounced us not guilty, what is there to fear from any accusation? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Romans 8.33. What a great statement of assurance of security. God has rendered his unchanging verdict. Is there any way anyone could come along and say, Oh, but hold it. God, you, you didn't have all the information. You didn't have all the evidence. You missed something. It's unthinkable. 
As Arthur Pink said it, quote, It is utterly and absolutely impossible that the sentence of the divine judge should ever be revoked. Sooner shall the lightnings of omnipotence shiver the rock of ages than those sheltering in him again be brought under condemnation, end quote. In other words, the divine judge has made a verdict that will stand forever. Satan tries to bring a charge against us because he is the accuser of the brethren. But all of Satan's accusations are thrown out of court because God has pronounced his unchangeable, unchanging verdict justified. It's final. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The very next verse in Romans 8, verse 34, says this, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Paul says it so succinctly, yet so powerfully. Christ died for us, he was raised for us, and now he is interceding for us. I mean, what more could we want to secure our salvation? His death paid our penalty. His resurrection was God's way of saying the sacrifice was sufficient. And now he even goes beyond all of that because he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Furthermore, think about this, beloved. Christ is at the right hand of the Father as a reward for his finished work. There are passages that tell us that. He is there at the right hand of the Father as a reward for His finished work. God has already rewarded His Son for saving us. So there's no way salvation can fail. The Lord's intercession makes it certain. Some Christians object to the security of the believer by saying, if we fail Christ, He just might take away our salvation. Listen. How can Jesus intercede for our failures and condemn us at the same time? It's impossible. That doesn't make sense. Jesus isn't schizophrenic. He's not double-minded. He is there interceding for our failures, not condemning us for our failures. So Romans 8.34 is saying, Who is going to condemn us when the only person who really could condemn us is Jesus, and he's interceding for us? Can someone come along and overturn Christ's intercessory work? Absolutely not. Is Christ going to turn around and condemn us? No. Because he's the very one who's interceding for us. As I often like to say, we talk a lot about the finished work of Christ. And beloved, we should. We should regularly uphold the finished work of Christ. What that, that statement is referring to is the fact that when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. He did everything that was needed for our salvation. And we can't add to that in any way. Our own works, our own goodness, we can't merit grace, earn grace, any of that. The finished work of Christ is a statement that has been, been uh, sort of invented to counter all false religions which say we add to the work of Christ by our own works. So the finished work of Christ is a biblical doctrine, and we should make much of it. But let's never forget the unfinished work of Christ. That is, his ongoing work of intercession. Christ's intercessory work assures us of the security of our salvation. Hebrews 7.25 says of Jesus, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why? since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
The word uttermost means completely. He's able to save completely. It means eternally. He's able to save eternally. And the reason Jesus can save completely and eternally is because he lives to make intercession for us. As new creations in Christ, we don't want to sin. You know that. Oh, sure, we're, we're tempted and we have, we're vulnerable. We have weak points. But deep down, as new creations in Christ, we don't want to sin. But when we do sin, Jesus doesn't take away our salvation. He doesn't turn against us. He intercedes for us in the face of all the accusations Satan brings up to our God. Furthermore, the day is coming when Satan will be cast out of heaven and he will no longer have access to God to do that. And when that day comes, this verse says, there will be a shout of victory and exclamation in heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. The word salvation there carries the idea of victory. So what this is saying is, now there is victory by the great power of God in Christ, and now the kingdom in heaven has been extricated of the presence of Satan. That's going to happen at some point in the future tribulation. In the meantime, how can we be victorious over all that Satan does to try to defeat us? Verse 11 tells us, says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. What a tremendous verse. This is one of the first verses I memorized as a teenager. What are the keys for victory over Satan? There are three of them mentioned in this verse. The blood of Christ, devotion to Christ, love for Christ. The blood of the Lamb is mentioned first because it is first. It's the foundation for our victory. Our sin is what makes us vulnerable and culpable to defeat. But the Lord Jesus Christ has dealt with our sin when he paid for it with his blood. None of Satan's accusations can stand against us because the blood of Jesus Christ has covered and washed away all our sins. That's first and foremost. Second, we have victory because of our devotion to Christ. This verse refers to the word of their testimony. That's a reference to our living for Christ, speaking for Christ, standing up for Him. That's our allegiance. And thirdly, we have victory by love for Christ. The last phrase in this verse says, they did not love their lives to the death. Victory in life and over Satan comes as a result of an all-consuming love for Christ instead of a protective love for self. So even though Satan will hit this earth and attack God's people with all the fury and ferocity he can muster, those who have been washed in the blood of Christ and are devoted to him and love him wholeheartedly will be victorious. When Satan is cast out of heaven, it will be a glorious time for all the inhabitants of heaven. But let me tell you something. It will be a woeful time for those on the earth. And that's the last verse of our text, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. The first statement in this verse exhorts the inhabitants of heaven to rejoice when Satan is cast out of heaven. Can you imagine how wearying it is to have him around? His accusing has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
So the inhabitants of heaven are encouraged to rejoice, but the inhabitants of earth are warned. When Satan is cast out of heaven and denied access to heaven, he will hit this earth with all the fury and wrath of a ferocious dragon. He can no longer accuse believers in heaven, but now his destructive work on earth intensifies, if you can imagine that. That's why this verse says, Woe. Back in chapter 8, we were told that there would be three more woes to come upon the earth. Chapter 8, verse 13 says this, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Three more woes coming at this point. The first woe is recorded in the first 12 verses of chapter 9 when a multitude of locust demons will be released from the abyss to torment people viciously for five months. That's woe number one. The second woe is recorded in chapter 9, verses 13 through 19, when 200 million more demons will be released to kill one-third of the people on the earth. The third woe will reach its climax in the pouring out of the seven last bowls of judgment in chapter 16. But watch this. Part of it is here in chapter 12, when Satan and his angels are denied any further access to heaven and they are cast to the earth. Now think about this. During the tribulation period, the earth is going to be crawling and swarming with demons. No wonder chapter 8, verse 13 says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Once Satan is cast out of heaven, he will be forced to confine his activities to the earth, and he will do so with the knowledge that his time is short, so he better wreak all the havoc he can. And he will cause an enormous amount of destruction. It will be a time of devastation unlike any time this world has ever known. But we can't end on that note. Don't forget verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. There is victory for those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be victory for believers in that time. There is victory for us today, and there will be victory in the future, even though Satan will unleash all his fury on the inhabitants of the earth and sea. So, if you know Jesus Christ, if you have him as your Lord and Savior, then you have victory. No matter what happens to us, beloved, in this life, even martyrdom, no matter what happens, we will experience ultimate victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yield to Christ today if you have not already done so. Let's bow as we close. Father, when we read a passage like this, it only increases or intensifies our hatred of our enemy. His, his destructiveness, his wickedness, his evil, his, his vile nature to want to ruin people's lives, destroy people's lives, to want to take as many with him as he can to the, to the lake of fire. He is wicked and evil to the core. And to think that someday he will be denied access to heaven 
And then he will have to unleash all of his activities here on the earth. What a precious statement you give us in the midst of all of that darkness. When we read, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and did not love their lives, even to death. May that be true of every one of us here in this room. May we be certain that we are washed in the blood of Christ. And may we have a testimony of devotion to him. And may we love him supremely and not our own lives. And may we live that day, that way until the day Jesus calls us to be with him, whether through death or the day when he descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and remain are caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, for we pray these things in your wonderful, precious, and matchless name. Amen.